0: Before the law, there stands a guard. A man comes from the country, begging admittance to the law. But the guard cannot admit him. Can he hope to enter at a later time? That is possible, says the guard. The man tries to peer through the entrance. He had been taught that the law should be accessible to every man. Do not attempt to enter without my permission. Says the god, I am very powerful, yet I am the least of all the gods. From hall to hall, door after door, each god is more powerful than the last. By the god's permission, the man sits down by the side of the door, and there he waits.
1: On this episode, we will be talking a lot about doors, and waiting by the side of doors, and experiencing the law through a door. This is the opening of Orson Welles' film adaptation of Franz Kafka's The Trial. This telling always comes to mind when I think about the barriers to the law and judicial system for the average citizen. We can often feel kept at a distance from the truth of the law, simply going through motions to get through it.
0: His hearing has failed, so the guard yells into his ear. No one else but you could ever have obtained admittance. No one else could enter this door. This door was intended only for you. And now, I'm going to close it. This tale is told during the story called The Trial. Has been said that the logic of this story is the logic of a dream, of a nightmare.
2: My blood pressure is up, my palms are sweaty. It was a very um, physically uh, emotional um, experience for me to speak to and interact with my government from behind a mock-up food slot. Even now, as I'm remembering it, I am amped up. It was really something physically changed in me. And I had nothing on the line. I had three minutes of a public comment at a committee meeting in March of 2021. The end. So I, I didn't, it was, it was a low stakes, interaction with my government, but I can't imagine what it would do for someone who is supposed to be interacting in a justice system. And so after that experience, I just could not let go of the fact that if this was me or my husband or my friend or you know, someone in my family that was interacting in their court process through this food slot, Would this is the best we can do be good enough? No.
1: (laughs) Now that we are approaching a year of COVID-19 in America, our incarcerated population are being pushed to their limits even more. We want to share some of our connections to those incarcerated and returning citizens and the reality of their experiences here in Wisconsin. This is Eli Steenlich.
3: I'm Karen Reese, and you are about to hear some justified anger.
4: I can't help but think a lot of times that people who are so who are either new to the system or even if they're not new to the system, are just going through the motions to kind of get on the other side of this of this hearing. Um, they don't truly always, you know. I would imagine that a big chunk of people don't truly understand what it is that they're doing, what the purpose of this hearing is, um, you know, what what's all happening. And until somebody can like sit and explain it and to say, okay, this is what the first step is. This is what you're here for. As an attorney, <sighs> rather than tearing up about things, I laugh because I just get uncomfortable. But as an attorney, it was it was a complacent, yeah, they're just doing what they have to do. This is just what has to be done. And Dane is just a bigger jail. And so, you know, you you understand and you do that. And it, it really wasn't until it, The observers mentioned something and i was like yeah that's really egregious that's really a problem you know and i i want my client to fully hear what's going on i want them to fully have all of these things and again i as a private defense attorney have the ability to like make sure that i touch base with them after the fact make sure they understand and even if it's not in that moment with the restrictions that we have
1: Julia Wesley volunteers with Justified Anger's Court Observer Program and has a desire to keep evaluating whether our courts are preserving a thoughtful level of humanity.
4: But honestly, as attorneys every day, we see the system, it's just really screwed up. It's just, we see it on a very regular basis and we know that, but there's a lot of complacency in the system, especially as the attorneys or whatever to just kind of like well this is how it goes and so to be a part of something that's trying to like take active change and to do that um it's just a really fun addition for me to be able to like do something about what i'm seeing every day
5: that's cool julia because in my experience with attorneys um as a non-attorney working with attorneys at times it feels like they have one they want. I know a lot of attorneys who want to reform things, and the only way they can think about it is how they argue their cases and make change within their client, their specific client work and not kind of at this. I mean, and that certainly fits into the bigger thing, but it's, it's interesting because I hear so often not like that's the only way they can kind of get their head around it.
1: That's Sandy Renardi. She helps start the Court Observers program and trains new members of the group.
5: So the Court Observers grew out of an initiative that was a, I believe it was a next steps initiative after one of the early Black History for a New Day classes. And it was inspired by a conversation that Pastor G had with uh, one of our local judges who made a comment that he knows that it makes a difference for him when a defendant in his courtroom has uh, support there, whether it's family or friends, when people are are present and supporting, that means something in his consideration. And just from that seed of an idea, um, I believe Karen and Pastor G took it to, could we have volunteers play that role of showing up and supporting people in court?
1: She's talking about Reverend Dr. Alex G., the founder of the Justified Anger Movement and the nonprofit organization, Nehemiah. Dr. Karen Reese, Nehemiah Vice President of Research and Education, has been integral in initiating and guiding the Court Observer Program.
3: We know, and we've known this for a very long time, that there are extreme racial disparities in our system. Black people not only are arrested at higher rates, but they are charged with more serious crimes they are sentenced to prison more often, and they're sentenced for longer periods of time than their white counterparts. There's some variation, you know, between charges. If you look, you know, at murder charges, you might not see as big of a disparity, but across the board, there's a great disparity. Our Dane County Jail and our prison system, for example, are very close to 50% white people, 50% black people incarcerated in those institutions. And we only have 7% of our population that is black in Dane County or Wisconsin. So, that is a, a large disparity. So, we know just by those data that the court system serves some people in one way and others in another way. We also know that this is very strongly linked to wealth. So, people who have access to funds, um, people who have access to, let's say, you know, I have a high bail set. Do my parents have a house they can mortgage to pay my bail? if if that exists that sets someone up for a greater chance of success versus having to fight their case from being inside jail there's a lot more conversations that can be had there's less stress that comes along with it Um, and by and large there is a big intersection between poverty lack of wealth and race so if you are not white you're affected if you are poor you're affected and if you have multiple Um, identifiers in those categories, you're affected. So we just decided to like, well, first steps, let's go to court and see how it works and
5: what's happening. So we started going and then decided to research other court watch uh, programs across the state or across the country. And we found many for victims' rights organizations, but we we couldn't find any that were watching on behalf of defendants and the experience that they were receiving. And so we put together some data collection tools, a monitoring form and ways to to capture our uh, observations.
1: Justified Anger has always been about shedding light on and changing the systems that impact the marginalized and people of color. The Court Observers Group have been a vital part of the movement toward just and lasting change.
5: Um, for me, it was when I started to really heavily explore issues of racism more deeply um, a few years ago. This was the one that kind of consistently caught my attention. Because it's a thing where so many people dismiss and it's not in our daily experience, we can completely avoid it. You know, um, education, healthcare, all these other realms, um, business, government, all these other realms, we all... Like have experiences and it it scares me that like this just gets, it's so out of our attention, which is also why kind of the purpose of the court observers is to help bring this piece in particular. Policing gets a ton of attention in the last few years in particular and mass incarceration gets a ton of attention on its side, but this process in between about how do we get from there to there, it doesn't and so that's part of what we're doing is kind of also bringing eyes on that part. So until COVID-19 hit, we went to court and watched hearings in person. And after a little while, the judges noticed that we were there. Um, they were kind of wondering, what are all these people doing? They don't look like law students observing. Because they, So they started to engage with us. And we were able to hold some judges' roundtables and things and start to kind of utilize our information.
1: As with most parts of our life, The pandemic really shifted how the courts and the court observers functioned.
3: Conducting court hearings during the pandemic is a huge challenge, was a huge challenge, still is. And so like every other industry sector, government sector, community sector, rapid decisions were needed, needed to be made to ensure that the legal process could continue at all. When the pandemic first started, all in-person gatherings, including court hearings, were ended visitation in jails and prisons were put on hold and actually have not resumed so people who are incarcerated have not been able to see their loved ones for over a year now which is pretty devastating they can make phone calls but that's not the same as being able to sit face to face and have a conversation so that's already disruptive so when
5: COVID hit we basically just kind of stopped doing anything for a while as everybody gathered their wits about them. And around July, we started, the core group started to say, what should we do? It's The hearings are online. Could we pick up observations again?
1: After some initial starts and stops, they realized, yeah, we can do this virtually. And in fact, it's fairly convenient observing remotely, and we can more easily grow the amount of observers by having more access.
5: We held a training in November and December, and then another one in January, February, and added another 100 or so people to our our trained observer list. Observers watch hearings right now online, and they record their observations. We have a a data collection sheet, and then they submit that to us, so it all gets submitted into one pool. Um, And then we work with people to process what they've seen at times and to answer questions. It takes a lot of learning. Like it's, when you first watch it, it moves fast and there's a lot of jargon and there's a lot that all, even those of us that have been doing it for four years still don't, you know, know or understand.
1: This is an important factor that I don't want to brush past that has been part of our justice system for a long time. Appearing in court is like a different world with a different language for the average citizen with no legal background. I used to work for a major tech company and we had a training activity to help us step in the shoes of an average person using computers or technology. With a partner, we would face away from one another so that we could not see each other. One person would be looking at a simple line drawing, like an outline of an ice cream cone and they would have to describe how to draw this ice cream cone without saying what it is. So you might start by saying, begin your drawing in the middle of the paper, about a fourth of the way up from the bottom, and draw diagonal lines going up toward the opposite top corners of the page, stopping about halfway up the page. Then you continue on with how to make scoops of ice cream on top of that cone. If you've never tried a learning activity like this, I encourage you to try it with someone. It's valuable outside of technology training for all kinds of purposes. But what you find is that it's very hard to describe how to accurately recreate even a simple shape. Something as basic as a piece of paper becomes a foreign landscape without established signifiers. At the company, we would relate this to a non-techie person trying to find out how to accomplish a task on a computer screen. Only some of the symbols and words may make sense to them, besides not understanding the process or spaces of the graphic interface of the operating system. See? Even now, some of you may be saying, what do you mean by graphic interface or operating system? Or most of you may be comfortable with this kind of computer language and can get done what you need on a computer, but you may miss some of the nuance of feeling like you are actually in complete control of your computer. So this is how it feels for most people in court. It feels like you have a massive gap in the process. Language and decisions are being made in reference to you, but you have little understanding of their significance.
5: And that's part of what we think the value is, is also that we can then see things that people who are in the room every single day might miss. And so we can say, wait, what's going on there? That If I was that, that defendant or that victim or a family member, I would have no idea what just happened and that was that would be my my life hanging in the balance and so if we don't get it watching from a you know less with low stakes perspective then what is what does that mean for people whose um
3: whose life whose life it's really impacting particularly if a person doesn't know anything about the criminal justice system doesn't know the data uh about the racial disparities They're going to assume, as we've all been taught, that our justice system is fair, that we all have due process, we have the right to confront our accusers, we're innocent until proven guilty, and we're judged by a jury of our peers. Nothing could be further from the truth. Most people are assumed guilty as soon as they're charged or arrested. Over 95% of cases are decided by plea bargain, not by jury trial. And so these are essentially negotiations, not unlike buying a used car and haggling down a price. When people reach plea bargains, it often involves those kinds of conversations, um, figuring out what charges, how can we reduce this as much as possible to benefit the defendant, but also make a statement from the prosecution's perspective um, that the crime will be um, perceived as serious as it really is. So it's a negotiation not what most of us learn about our our judicial system
5: so when we started watching online um, a lot of the things that were different were the same things that that many people experienced from their work lives which is technical difficulties on zoom um, people being muted when they uh, and not knowing they're muted yeah, all that kind of stuff the the way it works is that the the judge is in one. Uh, Logged in from one spot, the attorneys are um, usually in separate spots, uh, both, well, they're always in separate spots from each other, but often the defense attorney is also in, if the person is in custody, the defense attorney is also in a separate space from their client. And so the client is in jail. In in in-person court, uh, prior to COVID, they would have been brought from jail to the courtroom and they still would have, they would have been sitting next to their attorney and able to speak to them.
1: Pretty quickly, here in Dane County, Wisconsin, the court observer group started to see some choices being made for pandemic reasons that didn't sit great with them.
5: The biggest difference in what we saw in that is that uh, many defendants, particularly in initial appearance court, were actually looking into the zoom, the camera from the other side of their cell door through a food slot, the slot that's used to, to put a food tray through the cell door. And so you could barely see their faces. They were wearing masks. You often couldn't see their eyes. You couldn't tell uh, what their gender was or their, sometimes you couldn't even tell what their race was. And they're looking through, You it was hard to hear or to know if they wanted to speak. And this was awful. And I am um, sorry to say that the way that I thought about it at first was I went through in my head, like it struck me like that is terrible. And then in my head, I thought through the different things that they would have been considering. I immediately went to thinking like, well, what did the bailiffs have to do in this situation? What did the jail staff have to do? Because they're trying to keep people from being exposed to COVID. And so they're trying to comply with social distancing and minimize contact. But you know, and I kept thinking through like, well, could they have put somebody in a room here or could they have used the legal visiting rooms or could they, and I spun through all these options. Um, I've had the opportunity to do jail tours a couple of times. And so I'm familiar with some of the spaces in the jail and thinking through the different options and just kind of concluded like, Oh, you know, I can't figure out how they could have done it while keeping minimizing person to person exposure. And it kind of just moved on. And I'm kind of ashamed of that because it basically like what I, what I think about now after our other observers uh, started noticing when we had new observers, and they really pointed out to us
2: exactly how egregious this was.
1: Amy Thronson was one of those newer court observers that brought a fresh perspective to these pandemic court appearances.
2: You know, I don't know, I'd have to think about the last time I got a parking ticket or even pulled over I have zero interaction with the law, law enforcement, people in my family, you know, I, I don't, I just, I have had zero interaction with the court system. So I knew nothing. I, I, I maybe even knew less than nothing. But um, so I was able to bring fresh eyes <laughs> to a system um, that I had never interacted with, never been in a courtroom. I have never been in a police station. I have never been in a jail. I I don't even, I don't even, I could probably find them because I can use Google maps, but I I don't, I didn't have any interaction with the system at all. So I've only attended hearings virtually. And um, I think part of the reason why the food slot hit me so hard is that Since I didn't know what was going on in the proceedings, you know, after whatever, six hours of training and a few hearings that I watched, it was, I was still just so brand new. I could, took all I had to get the right YouTube link up and the right form and all of that. So I just did not even have a clue what was going on. So at the very basic level, I was responding to what I saw rather than processing what was happening from a legal or judicial standpoint i just didn't even know what was happening so i don't remember the first time that i saw the food slot but i know that every time i saw it i was like oh no this again why i can't even see that person how is it possible for them to even hear and on and on because i had a lot of thoughts about it And I was frustrated that this was happening to another person. And I was confused at why it had to be that way. And it always left me wondering how on earth the person in custody could even understand what was going on. Let alone all of the legal jargon and proceedings processes um, that you you couldn't see them.
1: Let me describe some observations of what I saw in an online video of people's first appearances in court via virtual video streaming through the food slots indoors.
5: All right, uh, we're all gathering via the Zoom application due to the COVID situation, streaming live to the public via YouTube. This is the time set for hearing on motion for-
1: The first man to appear is taller and is simply sitting on the floor his body sideways to be close to the door with his head turned toward the rectangular hole in the door to peer through it. The feet of other incarcerated individuals can be seen walking around in the background. There is a garbage can directly behind him, along with a mop bucket. After his case is settled, there is a brief exchange between himself, the attorney, and judge as they clarify the man's address. With each trying to decipher the correct numbers as the defendant's voice must pass through the slot and into a computer microphone sitting on the ledge outside the slot. The next defendant to appear also positions his body to the side, this time leaning his ear as close to the opening as possible, a small computer speaker on the food slot ledge. He continually returns to this position to favor hearing, so that his face is downcast below and to the side of the opening, so that you cannot see his face. Again, there is some back and forth of clarification and understanding the correct address being spoken. At one point, you see the bailiff's hand reach into the video to turn up the speaker. Another man appears for a bail decision through a door with a vertical window, sitting in a white plastic lawn chair again turned toward the side, not looking through the window. Until the end of his appearance, it is hard to tell if he is even hearing the proceedings, as he seems to simply be waiting and makes no sign of engagement with the conversation. Again, when the topic of an address comes up, it casts uncertainty that the whole conversation was understood by the defendant in the first place. And should we use the traceway drive address or the jail? Yeah. I think that's good. Yeah. Should we use the jail or the traceway drive address for mail?
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. I'd take that being use the jail? Okay. If you get released before the case is over... In several of these appearances, the court asks the defendant to give a thumbs up to acknowledge that they understand what's happening. This reminds me of what Julia was talking about, of simply going through the motions of agreeing to get through this part of the process. I
4: spend a lot of my time before and after hearings making sure that my client's are kind of pre- like prepared going into it and then afterwards we kind of debrief to make sure that they truly understood what just happened and I try to picture myself in the position that I'm sitting in the defendant's chair in the courtroom and the judge is asking me a bunch of questions and I'm just like yes 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 and your head is kind of blank it's these people are just, they're terrified. I, I mean, for somebody especially uh, coming, appearing from the jail. So even, so pre-COVID, there is a courtroom inside of the jail and there is, I mean, a full, a full get up. So there's a, a stand that the, the defense attorney goes and stands next to their client um, and can talk to them briefly, have a conversation, you know, whatever it might be, it can be a big problem. And to not be able to sit by your attorney, to stand by your attorney, to have somebody standing right there explaining everything to you word for word and making sure that you can put the court on pause. You can say, judge, I need to talk to my client to kind of then speak to this, this food slot issue. I I mean, it's, it's dehumanizing. I mean, it adds to it. Um, It adds to that having no idea what's going on. You can barely hear, you can barely see what's going on. I mean, you're, you know, you're looking through this food slot and what you're seeing is probably the screen of a laptop, maybe like the top of a microphone. Um, and you're trying to hear what's happening on this little laptop. Um, at the same time, it is the same feeling of embarrassment. I mean, I just echo what Sandy was saying. You, you just kind of set it aside. It, it, it's screwed up, but so is the rest of the system. So you kind of, you're complacent to it. Um, and then once you kind of start noticing that other counties aren't doing it this way, and not every hearing is this way, you're like, yeah, that's wrong.
2: Day after day, case after case, and person after person, I kept seeing the same food slot. And, but I was also seeing people who were not behind a food slot. So I knew it was possible. But I was a new volunteer and I didn't really go, know what was going on. So I just kept putting it in my observation notes and I just kept doing what I was being told to do. Watch these hearings, fill out the forms.
5: I kind of felt like, oh my gosh, I ignored it. Like I went through that process and aligned myself more with the system and the people doing, like, I saw myself more as the people um, who were working there than I did as the people that, who were owed due process and safety and protection um, and access to their attorneys and all of these other things. And so it's just like, it's embarrassing to think um, how that, how that happens and how easily we can slip into that.
4: And then I remember when I watched somebody gets sentenced to prison from behind a food slot and my jaw just dropped. Um, Initial appearances, I had even, like, was still complacent in my mind. You have a lot of people that you're trying to get through the system, you're trying to do all these different things. And, you know, you're like, okay, and, you know, we're working on it, we're aware of that problem. And then I watched somebody get sentenced to prison and they were behind a food slot and I sent an email to Sandy and Karen so fast I was like you guys this just happened I I can't you know it it may just be repetitive and it may be whatever but and it was at that moment that we had written we had written to specific people but I think that at that moment was when Karen was like okay we need to like we need to step this up a notch we need to you know because this is getting it's trickling into things that are even more important than an initial appearance and it's truly this person's future. I mean, a prison sentence and you can barely see and hear what's going on is... There's no excuse for that. Um, And this process has just been eye-opening.
1: Let's take a moment to process the scenario that Julia just mentioned. Picture with me, finding yourself alone in a small, bare room, and you're talking to a judge and lawyers through a small, rectangular hole in the door of this room. Besides having to hear the conversation and questions through this narrow hole, you are also straining to get a clear view of who is even talking to you. Along with this, you're unsure if they can see you on the other end. They can probably see your eyes or only part of your face. With all of this going on, straining to see, hear, and be heard you find out that you'll be sentenced to spend more time behind bars in prison. Do you feel like this is the best representation of yourself? Do you feel seen at all?
3: The other thing that I heard talked about was that judges had noticed this as well. And legally, people have the right to an in-person hearing. Now that wasn't possible during COVID, but no one explained to defendants, as far as I know, that they had an option to to decline this virtual hearing. Legally, they had the right to be in person. And so the system was taking it for granted that if a person showed up to their virtual hearing, that was implied consent, that they were waiving their right to an in-person hearing.
1: The low stakes comparison to this feeling of scrutinizing how you are being perceived and analyzing the significance of what is being said in a verbal exchange is similar to a job interview. I remember in my job interviews, thinking too much about the tips and advice I had heard about body language, tone, matching the energy in the room. I found myself overthinking what I was doing with my hands, making eye contact, but not too intensive eye contact, how my clothes looked and if they fit the position. All of this seemed to matter so much And yet, it is nothing compared to the pressure of the life-altering significance of a court appearance. Serving time will certainly mean a new status in society, affecting job and living opportunities for years or decades after. This is not a judgment on the need to serve time for crime committed, but to say how we would all want a chance at fair representation in these decision-making moments. And as Julia stated, right now, with how our system works, How you look and sound in the moment matters. You want to present your best self. It impacts justice decisions, but if you are being seen and heard crouching through a food slot, you can't even play this game.
3: The observers wrote some letters. Um, They wrote one to the Dane County Criminal Justice Council, which is a group that meets, it's an official Dane County Council, including the DA, um, judge representatives, different county office representatives, the sheriff's office, who are all working together to advance certain criminal justice reforms and to create communication across the team. The observers sent a letter to that council and did not receive any replies. And so after a week or two, I advised observers to follow up on that and ask why they hadn't received a reply. And to that, they got very basic responses from the sheriff and also a basic response from the DA, basically stating that there was a choice. Did they want in-person unsafe hearings or food slot as if those were the only options?
2: Sandy let the court observers know that there were these committee meetings that we could make public comment at, at as concerned citizens. So she you know, invited us to make a comment if we felt comfortable doing that. Um, and I was certainly very uncomfortable I had never participated in my government. I vote, but very, you know, I had never attended a committee meeting. I've never submitted a comment. I didn't know the first thing about it. So I was not comfortable, but I was ready to get uncomfortable for something that I believed was dehumanizing, and it could and should be changed.
3: The nice thing about this is that the observers are in a position where they can make a decision to take action as citizens. So they're not employees of Nehemiah. They're not an official entity where, you know, sometimes those requests are taken differently when brought up to official institutions. In this case, it was citizens speaking as citizens about how they felt about the process. So they signed up to give public testimony at the Criminal Justice Council a couple of times. They signed up to give public testimony at a county meeting.
2: I can't remember if it was my idea or my husband's idea, but I knew that I had to give my public comment from behind a makeshift mock-up food slot. So I like set up the camera, so it was like down like this.
4: do have uh, some public comment today. Our first registrant is going to be Amy Thrandon. Um promoting Amy now. Wonderful. And Amy, once you're promoted, um,
5: you'll have three minutes to address the committee.
2: Thank you for allowing me to address you today and your service to our community. I am addressing you behind a mock-up of a food slot hole found in the cell doors in the Dane County Detention Center.
1: Amy appears on camera from her home from behind a horizontally cut cardboard hole that is modeled to be the precise size of a food slot in a door of a jail where defendants appear. The area she is peering out from is lined with silver duct tape, while her face is in the shadows behind the cutout box. Her head leaning down with hunched shoulders and her voice muffled beyond the digital zoom audio signal with a face mask. It is even more disconcerting than you would think, even in this fairly routine county meeting. As with the court's defendants, all that you can identify with is Amy's eyes, seeing the embarrassment. It is a submissive posture. What none of them mention is that she is closer to the camera than the defendants appear in court. From jail, people are often a very small portion of the screen because of the distance from the camera. Nonetheless, Amy's presence behind the obstruction is effective.
2: My intention is to demonstrate how members of our community who are in the criminal justice system are often forced to interact with government officials and courtroom officials. Addressing you through a food slot hole with a mask on barely visible is certainly going to affect how you perceive me. Unlike the community members in our criminal justice system, I am free to speak about my experience in this position. I am uncomfortable. I am yelling so that I'm sure you can hear me. My body is contorted. I am looking up to you from a place of submission. How do you feel? These are the same realities that those who are in custody face for initial appearances. Those who are still presumed innocent until found guilty as well as for further hearings and even plea and sentencing. I am a new volunteer with the Court Observer Program with Nehemiah, and I am learning about the justice system by observing court hearings. I have been observing various hearings since January, and I have seen a number of hearings where defendants in custody have had to participate in their proceedings through these food slots. Others are behind bars. I have seen other hearings where defendants in custody have been behind a glass door or in a room. COVID has placed immense pressure on many systems in our society and we have seen many adjustments to systems that were in place. There have been improvements made since we have been forced to transition to online and now hybrid online and in-person communication methods but the use of food slots and incel in cell hearings remains a biased dehumanizing and unjust method for requiring justice involved community members to participate in their judicial process yes we are all hopeful that with increased vaccination levels and the need for social distancing to decrease, we will soon return to a new normal that will include in-person appearances. Regardless of when- Amy- Back to normal. Amy, your
4: three minutes are up. So if you have a concluding sentence or two, please state that.
2: If your son, daughter, spouse, parent, or friend were forced to interact with the court system in this way, Would you be satisfied being told this is the best we can do? Please consider requiring all hearings to be where defendants are behind a glass door or in a private conference room. Thank you.
3: Thank you for your comments, Amy. Uh, Lindsay, do we have our next registrant, please?
2: One of the other volunteers who was uh, participating in providing the public comment I don't know how she was able to see the committee members, but the first um, the first time that I spoke, um, she, her name's Lorna. Lorna said, one of the committee members did <gasps> And then at the next committee meeting, they knew it was coming. So there wasn't that, like, I don't think that physical of a response, but it would definitely, um, think it hit it hit people. And thankfully, um, we we as a court observer um, team really participated in committee meetings for, for only one week. We, we attended very few committee meetings actually to talk about this, this real problem. And our last committee meeting was on a Thursday. And by Monday, Dane County had made a change. And so it was possible to make a change. And... It didn't mean that our work was over because by tuesday there was a person who was attending a hearing behind a food slot because of behavioral issues all right so next up will be mr and uh looks like i thought we weren't going to be doing the mail shoot anymore food shoot anymore this was a behavioral issue so he's not allowed to come out of cell okay all right Um, so there's more, um, you know, work to be done to understand what that means, but it was possible to change. And, and I just can't, um, I just can't get that emotional feeling of what it was like to interact with my government in a very low stakes way through a food slot. I am, I'm hopeful that that visual has stuck with folks who are in positions of power. Um, and I now, I just, I look at things and say like, okay, well, I, I'm not in custody or I'm, I, how could I, inner, you know, how, how can I simulate what's happening so that I can understand better? And I think those are some really powerful things that we can do as allies and would be allies to try to put ourselves in a situation where I am white. I will never be um, a Black person interacting with our justice system. I I just can't be that. Um, But is there something that I can do that I can increase my awareness and empathy and feeling around?
5: I'll say that one of the things that I think I've noticed at times is, or learned to question a lot more over this process and through learning more about whiteness, is the extent to which this whole system is is structured and we're socialized in ways to respond to it. I, defendants seem to come in in a whole range of, like, some people, how they appear outwardly is a whole range. Some people look nervous and scared and might be fumbly other people armor up and they're going to not show anything they're going to do you know you think they're they're probably doing everything they can just to stay as stone-faced as they can other people openly roll their eyes and you know shake their heads and stuff and you kind of think oh geez you know that's not going to bode well for you and yet over time i've learned to think like well there's all kinds of reasons everybody walking in here has a different background and a different experience of interacting with institutions and a different level of how they have been treated. And that for white people, it works in most institutions. If you're compliant and you obey certain kind of rules that have been prescribed, it usually works. We can often break them and it still works. And that's not how institutions work for people of color so often and so I've learned to both like to consider that when I see people behaving in ways that I might not and to ask those questions I think
4: the one thing I will I'll say is and I (laughs) I That's actually kind of comes after kind of like the next steps, like the follow-up Black History for a New Day session, you know, and it was talking about what it's like to be Black in Madison. And one of the participants, somebody watching, you know, was like, you know, how can I assimilate, you know, better into like, you know, having relationships with Black people and that kind of thing. And one of the panelists responded and said, we don't get that same memo when we, you know, come into white society. And when I think about that with the system, you know, it's, it's very much Uh, people of color uh, trying to assimilate into a very white system and trying to they're going to do better if they can assimilate and become what white people want them to be um and so like sandy said you know the people who are visibly frustrated visit they're just verbally frustrated um and justifiably so sometimes that's not going to go over well but for somebody who's quiet and dressed nicely and everything else is going to, is going to fare a lot better. And it's just this, I, I think seeing people's reactions, it's, I don't think that's ever really how people are as people in when they are in court. I, I spend my days, you know, talking to judges and prosecutors about how, you know, something my client did is not what defines them as a person. And so I think that the person that you see in court is far from who that person actually is. And so whatever face they put up, Like Sandy said, I mean, it's just, it can be so understandable in most situations and it's just a completely different side.
3: It's like a machine that's operating. And if we're not actively thinking about how we can make things better for everyone in our society, then they just continue to go on and on. Um, Also, the vast majority of people in power in our criminal justice system are white, and that's been the case for generations. Even if we do have people of color in leadership positions in our criminal justice system, still these systems have been designed and shaped with white supremacist symbols and ideals. And so even if we, you know, while people of color in leadership positions can make change if they want to, they are still operating against a giant system that's very complicated, and because it has to go through the legislative process to make change, is not easy to make change. People are also going up against the dominant narrative that we have to be tough on crime, that our public safety is at risk, and if we were to make changes, we would be putting the public in danger. That is also not true. The crime rate has been declining um, throughout the country for the past 50 years, and so We see decisions that our legislators are making to continue to be what they call tough on crime. And we say we want to be safe, and so we just believe it. And so anyone that wants to make change in the system is fighting against this very, very strong narrative that if we make changes, we'll be less safe. The research actually shows that long periods of incarceration, when we keep people from opportunity, removing educational opportunities from prisons, removing vocational training from prisons, we are actually making ourselves less safe because then when people get out of prison, they don't have a way to feed themselves. They don't have a way to support their families. Oftentimes they're not able to find anywhere to live. And when you don't have your basic needs met, it's human nature to figure out how to get basic needs met. And that's not keeping any of us safe. It's not supporting our community. And so it's really important to get past that idea that the system is what it is and we can't change it, and really looking to change that narrative so that we can move things in the right direction.
1: And that is really what this whole issue comes down to. It's the nature of the beast like our government systems. We make decisions to meet the demands of the moment and quickly they become standard practice. We don't question it, and think it must just be the way it is done. But it also matters who is being affected by the structures of the systems and whether they have the power to change them. It is important that citizens also keep a check on our government and systems. For example, as Sandy and Julia conveyed to me, virtual hearings going forward could bring a lot of benefits for people's schedules and availability. But could also place pressure on some members of our society that don't have as easy access to technology required to appear virtually. The court observers are a great example of not settling for the easy answers and working to make things better, to keep questioning how decisions may affect everyone.
5: I feel like this experience of watching people attend their hearings this way. I watched one gentleman who He, I think he was a bit taller, but he crouched like in a squat position for over three minutes at the beginning. It ended up being like a 35 minute hearing, and I watched him stand, I could see that he was, like I said, in a squat position. Now, I will do anything in my power to avoid doing squats for like uh, 30 seconds, much less to stand and hold that position for three minutes. So I kept wincing while I'm watching it, but he did that. And then finally he sat down and then he was still crouching to look up into the food slot until he finally put his arms in it and laid his head down. And this was a grown man who at this point just looked so defeated. And it, it I felt like it made him look like a like a young boy. Like it, I was like, oh, I just wanted to reach out. He just looked so defeated. And... It just really made me think about the bigger, how screwed up our process and, and perhaps even the goals of incarceration are, that there's such a piece of it that seems designed to dehumanize and to humiliate people into submission and into uh, this this belief of what needs to be done to, to keep order. Um, within these walls and it all feeds on each other because of course you're not going to uh like people get worn down by being dehumanized and humiliated and so it's not surprising if jails and prisons aren't real safe places to be Um, it's how do people react and it just it's so counter to what we say as a society we want which is for people to be rehabilitated I mean, I think there's some combination of people not knowing that that's actually how it is, and people people not caring, and or people wanting it to be this way because the people that benefit from this most are the people that are. It separates people from us and allows us to say those people, those people who make these choices, who do these things, they're separate from us, and we get to live free because we're we're better in some way. It just raises so many questions about the bigger picture of how we're. Uh, how we respond to crime and sometimes not crime for people in this country.
2: That is one of the biggest takeaways that I've had in being involved with the court observers and through this food slot advocacy and engaging with my government is that I don't have all the answers but I also have the right to ask questions and I have the right to wonder. I have the right to tell someone, even if it's just my husband who I'm sure is sick of me, but I have the right to tell someone when when I get goosebumps, when it doesn't feel right, when I'm upset, when I wouldn't want to be treated that way. I I have all of those rights. And when I am participating and and surrounded by leadership through Nehemiah and through the Court Observer Program, I am in the right place to ask those questions, to listen, to be a part of a group who can use our individual and our collective power as citizens and as paying taxpayers and, and all those things Um, to advance something that we care about. And um, I think another big thing that I learned is, is that you can raise a little ruckus one week and you can see a change on Monday, but on Tuesday you better show up too because Tuesday can be different than Monday.
1: Thank you for listening to the Justified Anger podcast. Justified Anger is an initiative of Nehemiah. This podcast was made with the cooperation and collaboration of Rebecca Barber, Anthony Cooper, Aaron Hicks, Jeremy Holliday, Dr. Karen Reese, and Charlotte Miller. Thank you to Sandy Renardi, Julia Wesley, and Amy Thronson. A special thank you to the individuals that shared their stories and experiences of incarceration. Some individuals' names are not included to protect their identity. Production and editing is by Eli Steenlich.